Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today's guest is Niels von Doyden, an attorney advisor in the U.S. Department of State's Office of the Legal Advisor. He currently works in the Legal Advisor's Office for African and Near Eastern Affairs, where he covers legal issues relating to Israeli-Palestinian affairs and the Horn of Africa. He previously worked in the Department's Office of Employment Law. And as a disclaimer, the views expressed by Niels today are those of his own and not necessarily those of the U.S. government. Niels, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Greetings, Jonathan. Greetings, Fred. Thank you for having me. Niels, we'd love to have you start by telling us how you got here. Um, by way of background for our audience, Niels and I met when we were both law students at George Washington University. Feels like many years ago. Niels was the intimidatingly bright student uh, who befriended me, and so I've kept tabs on his career. And obviously, he's been doing very interesting things. So, Niels, we're happy to have you with us. Happy to hear uh, how you got where you are. And uh, I know we've had some conversations in the past. Uh, it's it, as you said, and I've said too. We always look pretty good on paper, but it's much more interesting to know all of the details in between those those impressive lines on the resume. Well, hopefully I can live up to that, uh, Jonathan. Um, as you say, it is an increasing number of years, um, and it's going up all the time uh, since, our, since our days in law school. Um, but uh, I guess for me, I'll, I'll start um, a little bit before law school, actually, um, because for me, uh, one of the really uh, fundamental development moments was uh, my time abroad in China where I uh, taught English for a couple of years in uh, Zhengzhou province, uh, I should say in Zhengzhou in Henan province, um, which you may have uh, seen was in the news recently, um, unfortunately, due to the, uh, the flooding there. Um, and it was after those couple of years and taking the LSAT in Beijing, which was um, quite quite an experience um, that I really decided law school was for me and uh, applied and uh, got into the uh, George Washington University. And um, yeah, while there then um, had the pleasure of doing um, a bunch of different things from law review to uh, mock trial board to moot court. Um, and uh, ultimately thereafter um, went and clerked at the uh, Western District for New York with federal district judge William Scutney. And after a year of that in, uh, in Buffalo, New York, I then went on to the Fifth Circuit in Houston, Texas, where I clerked with the Honorable Circuit Judge Carolyn King. It was uh, while I was in Houston that I um, applied to the Office of the Legal Advisor at the Department of State. It was actually a colleague who, um, uh, I'm not sure if you uh, would remember them, but was also at, uh, at George Washington with us and um, suggested, you know, hey, I know you're interested in international law. Um, why don't you apply? And I thought, well, originally when I was in law school, you know, I wasn't a U.S. citizen. Um, and so it, it wasn't an option for me. But uh, by the time I was in Houston, that had changed. And so I applied. And uh, fortunately, there was uh, a, a lot, lot of mutual liking on both sides. Um, and it worked out. And uh, then I started that state at the beginning of 2014. So for our law student audience, because we do have a fair number of law students who have tuned in from time to time, how many letters did you send out to try and get your clerkships? Uh, ball, ballpark me, because I know it was some kind of astounding number. Yeah. So, I mean, Jonathan, you will remember this all too well, right? We were going to law school in the shadow of the 2008 financial crisis. So a lot of the uh, things we did 
maybe were a little different, hopefully, um, from from the way things are now or, or more recent. But um, in terms of the clerkships, not thinking about uh, law firm um, applications or other applications, uh, it was several hundred um, easily. I remember going to our career office and picking up uh, a couple of boxes of uh, printouts and then printing a bunch at home and learning how to use mail merge and all of that. Um, so, yeah, it, it was uh, a significant effort, we'll say. Niels, it's good to have you on the podcast. Let me start off with with some personal connections that that, that we have. I'm a former State Department employee myself. I used to be a member of the Foreign Service and got to spend a year working at Maine State, which is the Department of State headquarters for those of you not, not versed in the lingo. So I had that experience as, as well. Well, most most Foreign Service officers do end up cycling through D.C. at, at, at some point, but um, I did manage to have that experience early on. By that time, I had already gone to law school I was already a licensed attorney, and very, very often I would I would walk by the offices of the legal advisor uh, L, right as as it used to be known back then. I assume I assume it's still the case, and I had a, a fair amount of curiosity as to what that work entailed. I, I found myself in a in an interesting position, right? I was an attorney, but not really working in the legal department of the organization where, where, where I was. Over time, I, I did learn a little bit about the kind of work that some of the attorneys working at, at state did, but uh, clearly there, there's a, a broad range of work that that's done and, and different specializations. So with that introduction, could you give us an introduction to the Office of the Legal Advisor and more specifically, what kind of work do you do in general terms? I think many of our listeners will have some inkling of what an in-house lawyer does. Some of them might even know a little bit about what an in-house lawyer working, well, it's not really in-house, but a lawyer working within a government department might be doing. But State Department, this is a little different, right? Uh, focus of the department is obviously on, on foreign affairs and international relations. So what kind of work do you do? Let me see if I can tackle all that. So um, first, Fred, that's great to hear. Um, I'm glad you had what sounds like a positive experience and that we were able to intrigue you a little bit uh, with the internal workings of L while you were there. I will say um, for those folks who are listening and are in law school, I think one of the things that's not appreciated enough is how... Um, how flexible your legal degree can be. And I have so many clients at the Department of State that do have law degrees. And although their daily work does not include sort of legal work as such, the training that they got uh, in law school, I think certainly is a big help with their work, Fred, I hope you feel the same way. Um, and uh, certainly makes my job easier, you know, when I talk with them, and they already have a grounding on some of the we'll say basic concerns that I'm able to express and the lingo that I use. Um, and Fred, I hope you will help rein me in if I start playing a little bit too much um, inside baseball. Uh, because as you note, uh, Office of Legal Advisor, we do refer to it as L, as in the letter. And uh, most people in the department or most bureaus are some composition of uh, letters, you know, whether it's S for the secretary, um, D for the deputy, uh, et cetera. So um, if, I, if I fall into that mode of speech, do please um, restrain me. But um, in terms of the uh, the work of the Office of the Legal Advisor, L, at a very high level, um, we can say that L furnishes uh, advice on all legal issues, domestic and international, that arise in the course of the department's work. So for us, that means assisting department principals and policy officials in formulating and implementing the foreign policies of the United States. And for us specifically, um, as attorneys, it also includes promoting the development of international law and its institutions as fundamental elements of those policies. So in terms of what we actually do then, um, the office is organized to provide direct legal support to the Department of State's various bureaus. Um, and Fred, you will know this, uh, but for other folks um, at the State Department, we have regional and geographic offices. So those are those which focus on specific areas of the world. For example, my clients are primarily in the Bureau of African Affairs and the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. Um, and then we also have functional offices that are those that deal with specific subject matters, such as 
economics and business, international environmental and scientific issues, or internal management. I can go into uh, more detail as to the specific offices, including my own, but let me pause there to see if um, uh, Fred, you or Jonathan had any follow-up or questions on that. Niels, that sounds excellent. Please continue on the track that you've taken. Sure, happy to. So L is divided into 23 sections that roughly correspond to these various bureaus I was just uh, talking about. So as with the State Department structure generally, we've got L regional offices that focus on specific areas of the world and functional offices that deal with specific subject matters, be it human rights and refugees, political and military affairs, oceans, international environmental and scientific affairs, uh, legislation, foreign assistance. We also have offices in The Hague, Geneva, Brussels, and New York. Um, and then uh, we uh, rotate through these um, different offices. So as Jonathan mentioned at the uh, top of the show, I started in our Office of Employment Law, and I'm currently in our Office of African and Near Eastern Affairs. So I am what we call a regional attorney, right, covering specific area of the world. And then um, shortly, uh, I learned recently that um, I'll be rotating again and moving on to our uh, UN Affairs Office. So also very excited about that. So Niels, let me ask you about these rotations. For those who are not that familiar with the State Department, there is quite a bit of movement, internal movement, right? This is something that both Foreign Service officers who are going to different embassies and consulates and also coming back to D.C. for assignments, this is something that they experience, but it's also something that to some degree characterizes D.C.-based or U.S.-based employees as well. And I think that's actually one of the pluses of, of working at the State Department. You have the opportunity to do different things. And if you're looking for a change, there's pathways uh, available to do that. Of course, there's probably differences in terms of how much flexibility a, a particular employee has, depending on their skill sets and depending on where they, they currently are. But let me ask you, with the, the attorneys working in your office, how often do you get to change to a new position? Maybe tell us a little bit about how that works. I mean, I know, for example, with the Foreign Service, there, there's pretty well-established cycles where uh, you, you know when your assignment is coming to an end and, and you have to line up your next assignment. Is it as structured as that or is it more perhaps of a, of a self-driven process where you say, you know, I've been doing this kind of work for three or four years, would be nice to to do something a, a little bit different. Um, do you have, uh, as we used to do, bid lists where where the uh, the different openings are announced or is it done somewhat differently? I'm interested in the mechanics of the changes. So as an initial matter, Fred, I think it's exactly right that that is a similarity. We're not foreign service in L. Um, for the most part, we are um, civil service, but um, we do have a similar rotation system as uh, foreign service officers. The key difference, I suppose, being that we tend not to go overseas, right, unless we're talking about one of the few positions in, um, you know, offices like Brussels or Geneva or The Hague um, or New York. Um, but so on average, every two to three years, you will see um, attorneys in L rotate from one office to the to another. And it, um, everyone is on sort of their own, their own schedule. It's not that, uh, you know, May comes around and, um, everyone in an L office turns over in, into a new one. So every, just depending on when folks start in a particular office, that kind of starts their timeline. Um, and we find that after a attorney is uh, in the office for about two years, um, they are then eligible to start thinking about rotation. And let me let me start by talking about what it's like when you first join um, L, because it is typically not the case that for new attorneys uh, joining the office of the legal advisor that they will go into any office, right? So we'll be asked our preferences, but broadly speaking, um, there are a series of offices in L that we sort of start you out in, um, and these tend to be offices that um, have really good work for learning the inner workings of the Department of State. So I started in the Office of Employment Law, which is an office that a lot of our new attorneys start in. And, uh, you know, there I am working with clients across the department because, unfortunately, you know, as with any other 
large organization, um, every part of the department may give rise to some kind of employment uh, related litigation. So one of my main uh, duties in what we call LEMP was uh, working on cases and defending the department before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EOC, the Merit Systems Protection Board, MSPB, um, working on cases uh, with the Foreign Service Grievance Board, supporting personnel litigation in federal courts, right? You know, within the first few weeks of uh, me joining state, I was taking and defending depositions. I became charged with managing cases from inception through discovery, motion practice, you know, until an administrative hearing, uh, our equivalent of a trial. And that gave me a really good foundational knowledge of um, of how the department functioned, um, how a lot of the offices function. And our other sort of offices that many new attorneys start in are similar in that regard. Um, so once uh, you have made it through sort of this initial management style office um, and you're two, two and a half years in, you're going to start expressing your preferences for rotation to our front office. You will meet with the uh, one of the deputy legal advisors, and you will kind of have a conversation about what skills are you looking to develop? What skills have you developed? Where are you hoping to go in L? Um, you know, what are your long-term aspirations? What are your short-term aspirations? And how do those line up with the positions that we anticipate will open up? Because remember, everyone is on their own schedules, right? So, um, you might be interested in a position in this office, but if a bunch of attorneys have recently rotated to that office, you know, there's not going to be a position free there for probably a couple of years. And so all of that gets taken into consideration. Um, and at the end of the day, depending on what your timeline is as to when you are ready to rotate and what is available and, of course, just the needs of the service, right? Um, where where do we have a attorney shortage? Where is there more um, activity, more legal work being generated? Where do we need backup, right? Um, the, the attorney is going to rotate into that position. One of the things that... Um, when I talk with law students, you know, I, I try and really stress is the rotation system is great for creating generalist attorneys, which is what we view ourselves as, right? Rotating this frequently, we become generalists, we learn a particular portfolio. And then once we have really learned it well and are super comfortable, we rotate into a new portfolio and kind of start from scratch, right? And, and have to relearn um, a whole new skill set, which, you know, if you're intellectually curious, that's a big plus if you're looking to sort of do the same thing for 10 years and really feel like, you know, you own the set of issues um, and are the best in your field at explaining them, you know, maybe maybe it's less ideal. Um, but the, the thing that turns some people off is the thought that once they rotate into a particular position that they really enjoy, you know, they can't sit in it forever. Right. I have been in the African and Near Eastern Affairs office for five years because I love the work, um, but it's time for me to move on. Right, um, It's time to give others the opportunity to, to um, work on my portfolio. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the, um, the cycle that we go through um, with the rotation system. And uh, yeah, it, it's, um, it does mean that uh, we keep having new experiences. And for me, at least professionally, uh, I find it incredibly rewarding. Um, I really have difficulty now thinking of myself as kind of doing the same type of work for an extended period of time, as opposed to constantly learning new parts of the department, new portfolios, new legal issues. Um, so, uh, yeah, for a particular kind of attorney, it's really thrilling work. Niels, just to jump in, I, I think that what you described was a dynamic that was very present in the in the Foreign Service as well, right? I mean, for the average officer there would be that mixed bag of, of experiences that were really enjoyable, experiences that perhaps were not as enjoyable, but there was always that risk, if you will, of, of ending up somewhere where everything just really fell into place. You, you enjoyed the work, you enjoyed the place where you were living, but at the same time, you, you knew that, that, that at some point that would come to an end. I mean, of course, the flip side of that is that if you're in a situation that you don't like, then you, you always have that, the light at the end of the tunnel. Just one quick follow-up, and, and again, thinking of future potential State Department lawyers, law students who are finding out about different options. One um, misconception that I've encountered is some people think that it is your department that basically serves as legal attaches overseas. 
So perhaps you could clarify what the difference is, because I think there are there are people who think who assume that that if you wanted to to work at embassies overseas in that capacity, that your pathway would be the one that they would take. But that's that's not the case. So perhaps you can explain that. Yeah, and let me um, let me start by uh, kind of addressing your, your your comment on on my response because I think um, you know there are a lot of similarities in terms of the rotations that you see foreign service employees and um, state L attorneys uh, un- undertaking. I think one of the there's there's a lot of reasons for why foreign service employees move move around, including some of the same for for why we move around um, state attorneys the way we do. One of the main philosophies, I would say, um, in L is uh, this notion I mentioned uh, a moment ago of, of being a generalist. So the department is an incredibly complex organism um, that is engaged in, um, frankly, an unfathomable number of, of activities um, at any given moment. You know, we have tens of thousands of employees um, around the world. So one of the benefits from an institutional standpoint um, with L's rotation system is the fact that attorneys get to see all these different facets of the department. And what that means is that every time we rotate, we sort of understand the department a little bit better. We're working with clients that we haven't met before and that we didn't understand what they did, but now we do. And when it comes to something like issue spotting, right, um, which I as a regional attorney um, is really one of my main skills is, you know, a legal issue comes across my doorstep or maybe a policy issue with with hidden um, legal issues embedded in it. Um, and I need to figure out which attorneys do I talk to, right? Do I have the skill set necessary to answer this query or do I need to coordinate with colleagues who may have specific subject matter expertise? And the more rotations I have under my belt, the easier that becomes for me because I know who to reach out to because maybe I had their job, right, in a former rotation. Um, and so so we find that as attorneys do more and more rotations, they just become more and more valuable um, to the department. Returning to your um uh, most recent question of sort of differentiating legal attaches um, from uh, state legal in Washington. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure I had this misconception, right, at, at certain points in, uh, in law school. So it's important to remember that L is primarily 99% based in Washington, D.C. Um, while we have a handful of positions overseas, and while we may have uh, temporary positions, depending on what's going on in the world um, overseas, the vast majority of folks are going to be in, in Washington. Um, and we are working with our Washington-based clients, as well as regularly interacting with posts with our embassies. Um, you know, I don't, I in, not infrequently get on the line with um, embassy colleagues uh, in Jerusalem, for example, and we'll discuss various issues or just listen in on their conversations um, and give feedback or, you know, issue spot and flag anything that, um, that I might notice. So I think that's important to realize. If you are um, really set on wanting to live overseas, um, I think L can be um, maybe a, a jumping off point for you to long term uh, look overseas, but uh, you know, in your short and midterm career, uh, you, you're going to be based in, in Washington. Um, if you are interested in being a legal officer at an embassy, there's really a, a few options um, that I like to shout out. So, um, legal attaché. <clears throat> Is, uh, is one of the ones. So working with, uh, for example, Department of Justice or FBI, they have overseas positions. Most federal agencies, it turns out, have some international department. You know, Department of Agriculture, for example, has an international division. The uh, Department of Justice has Office of Foreign Litigation. Um, and Many of those positions are overseas because they are working for one reason or another, um, you know, directly at our embassies. Um, I think the best example of this is probably uh, USAID's uh, regional, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, regional uh, attorneys um, who are at post serving there um, with USAID and uh, advise on local legal issues and deal a lot with um, foreign assistance and the contracting part of that. 
And that's a great option for folks who want to be in the field. And um, it's not uncommon that we have some of those uh, folks, you know, coming over and then pursuing a career in L. So if either you don't see your future in L or it's not possible right now or you want to be overseas, there are a lot of options and some of those options can lead then to a later um, career in L. And returning to uh, one of my earlier points, you know, lots of folks with legal degrees work at the State Department, and the vast majority do not work in the office of the legal advisor, right? So if you are okay with being an individual who is working on policy, who's actually part of the decision-making apparatus, right, as opposed to L, which usually doesn't take policy positions on the underlying um, issues, then joining the foreign service um, and having the type of experience that you had, Fred, is, um, I think, just uh, just tremendous. And I would encourage anyone, you know, who's in law school or considering law school, not to close off those particular careers. Um, because, of course, looking, Fred, at uh, where you are now, right, um, you can see how your own career right, has, has uh, brought you to this place. So, um, yeah, I think that's underappreciated. Hopefully I answered your question. I think I started rambling towards the end, but uh, pull me back. No, you did. Thank you. So, Niels, let's talk about your experience with Africa. I'm very uh, interested. You've spent the last five years dealing with Africa and Near East issues. Uh, I'm certainly a hotbed of everything, right? I mean, uh, talk about geopolitical issues. What have you seen? What kind of issues have you run into that you can talk about? And how are the challenges uh, in Africa or the Middle East different than issues where you, that you've seen in other areas? Jonathan, I'm glad that you asked such a um, tight and discreet question. I'm not a litigator, so I like to leave things very open-ended. <laughs> hey, I mean, that's uh, that's the type of question I ask on, on that position, right? <laughs> so, yeah, tack tackling this uh, one piece at a time. Um, you know, I have to speak in sort of generalities as to the specific issues um, I've worked on. Um, I can say that my portfolio has focused in terms of the Africa side and North, uh, Near Eastern Affairs, um, has focused on Morocco and Egypt and Somalia and Kenya um, on the African continent, and then uh, Israeli-Palestinian issues um, in the Near East, and a little bit of our policy towards um, Iran, in particular overlapping with the International Court of Justice. So already, just by identifying the those countries, you can imagine a number of the legal issues that have um, arisen, whether it is Egypt, whether it is uh, Morocco, whether it is um, the Al-Shabaab insurgency in Somalia, right, that impacts the entire Horn of Africa um, and Kenya in particular. Um, so those those issues have um, arisen uh, for me, and I can, I can speak in greater detail about, about those as well. Um, in, in terms of sort of the... Uh, issues involving Africa, I think one of the things that folks struggle with, um, and, and that I suspect I struggled with as well, um, especially early on, is that, you know, we have a relationship with each of these countries, and each of them has their own history, um, their own uh, backstory on how they came to be, but also a story that is part of a larger whole, a regional whole, and then an African whole. And you need to really appreciate each of those levels when you are tackling either legal issues or policy issues, because they overlap with one another. And it's it's really easy to lose the thread and to be surprised if you don't have all three of those lenses kind of layered on top of each other. Um, so uh, one example of this, you know, of course, is uh, Somalia, where... Um, we have a number of federal member states, and uh, each of which has different relations with the central uh, federal government there, including a region like Somaliland. But you can't really understand Somalia without appreciating the broader politics of the Horn of Africa, including um, relations with uh, Kenya, um, both because of uh, you know some of the attacks that Kenya has suffered and because of the interest that Kenya has in uh, in a stable Somalia, and that in turn you know, takes you to um, a, a continent-wide level where you're thinking about African Union uh, policy in Somalia and how each of these different actors um, proceeds in the African Union in terms of uh, pan-African policy to resolve some of the issues um, that uh, Somalia faces, which is why, for example, you have Amazon, so the African Union uh, peacekeeping mission there um, that is uh, helping to combat al-Shabaab. So I think unlike other 
parts of the world. And, you know, I, I have to speak cautiously, right, because I have not, my experience is, is, is very specific here. Um, but I, th- I think the mistake folks make when, when they're dealing with Africa-related issues is not to appreciate those three, three levels, right, country-level history, regional interactions, um, and then the, the more global, more um, continental uh, policy-wide um, lens through which uh, folks are thinking about problems. I'll, I'll pause there um, because I probably have again gone off um, off script. But no, you're right. It's a massive topic, and I'm finding myself curious how often you need to remind yourself and others during those conversations when you're discussing discrete legal issues to back up and discuss those greater geopolitical concerns uh, and the overlapping, uh, you know, region groups, history, uh, you know, terrorist groups, insurgents. There's so much going on all overlaid on top of one legal question you're trying to answer, how often do you find yourself having to and uh, take a step back and say, I need to think about this in a macro way before I dive back into my issue? You know, I think that is one of the main ways in which we are able to add value um, to the department's work. I think, you know, our clients are, um, are dealing with the problems that are right in front of them um, and that demand answers now. We sometimes, as lawyers, I think, have the luxury, both because of how we think about problems and because, again, L doesn't typically take policy positions. So we sort of don't have a horse in the race, you know, in thinking um, about these issues more broadly to identify what are the pros and cons to our clients that, um, you know, providing them that more more objective frame of mind um, and helping them to step back and, and look at uh, the problem in, in, in that light. Um, you know, clients do that themselves. That's why we have sort of the Africa Bureau, right? Um, and we have folks that, that are looking um, at those larger levels as well. But when I'm working with desk officers, for example, I, it is quite often that um, I sort of step back and I, and I think about how the action we take here is going to impact the action we take um, elsewhere. So I can give you uh, a couple of examples. So when we are uh, working on a particular legal issue with a country, the folks working on that country are thinking, you know, how can they reach the best resolution on this issue for our bilateral relationship with the country? Or maybe if they're thinking broader, you know, for our relationship with the African Union. Whereas in L, while we're thinking about that as well and and sort of weighing the importance of um, a good answer right now, we are also almost like um, a, a, a circuit judge clerk, if you will, thinking about the broader spectrum of what has been our past answer to this question, and are there problems by us maybe changing course at this point? Um, what questions are likely to arise in the future that logically would have the same answer, but yield a less desirable result, right? And what's going on right now in other parts of the world? What other questions are we handling um, where the answer to this question is going to matter? Um, This, of course, comes up when we interpret uh, federal legislation, right? There are a lot of assistance restrictions, of course, and how we interpret one particular authority or um, the circumstances under which we think a notwithstanding authority may be available to overcome some of those obstacles, um, you know, both whether it's applicable and whether um, just interpreting it, it's, it's, it's supportable, um, that impacts our thinking across the board. Um, and so we have a pretty extensive institutional knowledge that we bring to bear uh, when we consider legal issues. And, you know, working on Israeli-Palestinian um, issues, it probably will not surprise you that it is not uncommon for us to kind of dig back into statements from 60s, 70s, 80s, and even earlier to see what were the positions of the U.S. government then versus what are we trying to do now? And can those be reconciled? Should they be reconciled? And what does that do to our legal views on this issue more broadly? So we could certainly spend many more hours discussing your work at the State Department, there's there's just so much there. I'm going to have to force myself to make a, a hard turn and take advantage of, of your experience in another area of the law, and that is uh, your your clerkships. It's a privilege to to have this opportunity to sit down and talk with someone who who's had the experiences that you've had in that field. So please tell us more about the clerkships. We've talked a little bit already about the process to 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 apply for them i think maybe we don't we don't have to focus too much on that but but again the in, in the same way that i was somewhat um, mystified by 
thinking about what went on be, behind the walls of, of, of your office. As someone who has not had the experience of, of clerking, I also have some questions. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by that as well. And, and, and I'll go a little bit further by saying that to the extent that most of us, whether we are lawyers or not, hear about clerkships, very often it, it has to do with Supreme Court clerkships, which are unique in their own ways, I'm, I'm sure, and, and probably the, the work of, of, of most clerks around the country while enjoying some similarities to, to what Supreme Court clerks do. There's also significant uh, differences. So um, tell us more about the, the day-to-day work of, of a clerk. I mean, I had professors in law school that would suggest that Supreme Court decisions were pretty much the the work of, of clerks uh, in their entirety. I, I mean, I'm sure there's some truth to that, but not not, not perhaps as, as absolute. Uh, as I said about the day to day of your work, what were the interactions like with judges, with fellow clerks, to the extent that you are able to speak to this? Uh, how would the experience of, of being a clerk in a place like New York be different from, from being somewhere else? You, you, you were also working in Texas, so that already presents some differences as well. Also, of course, the difference between the, the different court levels, right? Working at the, at the trial court level or working at the appeals court level. Once again, I mean, this is, this is a, a very open-ended question on, on my end, but really anything you can share with us about those experiences uh, will, will be appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that is a hard turn onto a wide highway. So yeah, let me let me start by saying um, when I was applying for clerkships, I was thinking very practically. Um, I was thinking, boy, we've got this you know financial recession going on. Uh, jobs are hard to come by. Clerkships are a category of jobs um, you know that um, is still coming up, um, and that. I am told, can help build my resume. I didn't necessarily know too much more about what the day-to-day work um, of a clerk uh, was going to entail. Though if I had, I mean, it would have just motivated me further because I think it is a a tremendous um, experience and a massive privilege, as as you noted, um, to get to do that. And for anyone who is interested in really seeing the U.S. legal system from the inside out, from indictment all the way to the exhaustion of appeals, um, a clerkship is uh, is just tremendously valuable. So as I noted, um, I clerked at both the district uh, level and the circuit level. Each of those, whether you are a district level uh, clerk or a circuit level clerk, are going to be quite different from each other. And I can't speak to what clerkships at the uh, magistrate judge level um, are, um, though I think they are going to have some similarities to um, a district uh, court clerkship. And, uh, you know, as I think with you, Fred, I cannot speak to um, clerking at uh, at the Supreme Court level, I'm afraid. But um, in terms of the daily work that existed at the uh, district level, so each judge is going to have their own preferences for how they work with their clerks. Um, and I, I don't want to speak too much about my uh, specific experience because that you know may not mirror all clerks' um, experiences with their judges. Judges have a lot of latitude in how they manage their chambers, um, and they have a lot of preferences, you know, in, in how they go about things. Um, so I'll, I'll 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 speak on some things that I think are generally true. That I think. Um, uh, uh, at least some, maybe many uh, clerks would, would agree with. So first, um, you're going to have a very close relationship with your judge. Your judge is going to rely on you most likely for a lot of things, everything from preparing them for daily status conferences that they have with um, parties, either at the civil or criminal level. You're maybe preparing them for sentencings. Um, you know, giving your views on whether this is um, something that should be uh, within the guidelines or whether there are any legal issues or whether the parties have raised any concerns that need to be considered as part of application of the sentencing guidelines. You are uh, potentially going to get to work on civil and criminal trials, which will involve you addressing everything from motions in limine to um, drafting jury instructions. Um, And so, 
in addition to that daily work, you will uh, likely help the judge manage their docket, and they're going to have a lengthy docket of pending motions, be they motions to dismiss, uh, motion for summary judgment. Depending on what your judge um, you know, asks of you, you might be writing recommendations for how these should be resolved and really providing your judge all the information that they need to render a decision. Now, they may come back and have more questions for you, but in a lot of cases, or a lot of instances, I should say, because there are a lot of cases, um, you know, the judge is really relying on you to do much of that legwork, digging into the record, um, making sure that the parties are kept honest, um, that you know all the deposition uh, testimony that they're citing really flows the way they they think it does, um, and uh, and making recommendations. Um, so that's the that's the district level, and uh, both in terms of civil and criminal law, it is fascinating to get to see. Uh, attorneys in real practice, right, um, appearing and making their arguments and how they interact with each other. Um, there were just so many things that that I learned that I had maybe heard about academically, but to actually see every day, you know, how does the Department of Justice talk with uh, defense counsel on um, uh, what is an acceptable sentence? You know, how how do they engage in plea bargaining? How does a judge speak to a jury? Um, how are jury instructions? you know, drafted? Where do they come from? Um, things like that. So uh, just just tremendous experience, and I can expand on any of those little bits. Um, the circuit level, you know, in, I, I think in an ideal world, uh, most attorneys would clerk for a district court judge or maybe a state equivalent, and then clerk at the circuit level, because then they see really the whole legal system, you know, setting aside um, Supreme Court review, for example. Um, and, and the some clerks describe working at the circuit level uh, as sort of being in the ivory tower because you are not concerned, so it is said, with the outcome of a particular case. What you are concerned with is a precedent right, that it will set across other um, cases. So some what's similar to what I was just talking about with our work at the State Department, where we are trying to think not just about the immediate legal issue, but how uh, its resolution and its interpretation is going to apply to other legal issues down the road in the past or contemporaneously. Um, so at the circuit level, you are thinking about that. You are thinking about the uh, makeup of the court and sort of where the law is going, I will say. Um, and what I mean by that is um, when a case comes to a circuit, it's possible that this circuit is dealing with a legal question for the first time. Right? It, arose for the first time at the district court level, but now it's being considered for the first time on appeal. There may be other circuits that have considered the issue and they have come out one way or the other. And looking at those circuits, what their reasoning is and figuring out, you know, what is your judge's views um, on this and making sure that you inform them properly of all of this. Um, and, uh, you know, what what are the views of the circuit uh, more generally? Because one of the experiences that you're not going to get at the district court level, and you might not at the appellate level, um, is when the case goes in for en banc review, right? Um, which is a whole uh, another process, uh, part of the process uh, to see. Um, but I think... Uh, again, speaking generally, that circuit judges like to see attorneys that have had district court clerkships because they know that those attorneys are familiar with what it's like in the trenches. Circuit judges, I think, are often wondering what was it that led a district court judge to render the decision they did, either on a motion or um, you know, during, during an actual trial. And having a clerk who worked with a district court judge and saw that side of things and the conditions under which those decisions need to be made, um, I think can be invaluable. Um, and so uh, you know, being able to bring that experience to the circuit level, um, I think is great. But Listen, if you talk to other clerks, I think you're going to have some who vastly prefer working at the district court level and some that vastly prefer working at the circuit level and maybe different opinions about which is more valuable. Um, but just having gotten to see both sides of that coin, you know, that's my perspective. Niels, we'd love to talk more with you. As Fred said, we are basically at time now. So we're going to have to jump to our last question, which I actually enjoy consistently across all of our interviews. We like to end with recommendations from Fred, you and me about uh, something we've read recently or seen, anything at all on point or not on point. So we'll start with you, Niels. What do you have to recommend for our listeners? 
Oh, excellent. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing yours. But um, for mine, uh, I decided to go pure fluff um, because I'm a science fiction fan. That said, I think when I tell you about my choice, you'll see sort of how it intersects with some of the topics we've been discussing. My recommendation was the 2020 Hugo Award winning novel called A Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martin. So the reason it spoke to me, um, I think, will be apparent from its central premise, which is you have a science fiction world, right? You've got um, an interstellar empire. You have some smaller um, uh, nations. Um, and uh, you are following the protagonist is the ambassador from a small nation of space stations who is appointed to represent her people to this much vaster, much larger interstellar empire. All the while, she investigates the death of her predecessor, the preceding ambassador, uh, within that society. So you've got, uh, in addition to the diplomatic intrigue that is at the heart of the book and which is expertly done, um, the author uh, has a background in Byzantine history. And uh, they, they weave these themes of Roman and Byzantine culture, as well as history of the empire of the Aztecs, into how the societies in this book are depicted. That is um, just from you know, a historical and anthropological uh, standpoint, super satisfying. Um, and on top of that, the book speaks to themes of colonization, both administrative and cultural, and the fundamental imbalances that exist between people trying to communicate with each other when they come from these different backgrounds, um, and whether it is possible or not possible, uh, when you have such a overarching culture, um, right, that really influences um, all these all these smaller entities. Um, so it was just an absolute joy to read um, and think about. Excellent. Thanks for that recommendation, Niels. Fred, what do you have for us today? So we are recording in the midst of the everything that's happening in Afghanistan. I don't even know what the uh, term would be to really describe all that's happening, right? We've got takeover of, of Kabul by the Taliban. Like maybe maybe we can use that as a as, as a reference point. But there are so many things going on with evacuation of Americans and other foreign nationals as well as Afghans who who, who are also being being evacuated. So along those lines, I, I thought I would recommend uh, one of the many things that I've read recently, one of the many excellent things that are really being written about about Afghanistan. But I think this is probably the best. The title of the piece is CIA's former counterterrorism chief for the region, Afghanistan, not an intelligence failure, something much worse. Author of that is Douglas London. And this was published on the 18th of August on a website called Just Security. So, so take a look at that if you have any interest in, in Afghanistan. By the time this podcast comes out, we there might have been more time elapsed. Uh, well, there, there will be more time elapsed, but still a, a relevant read. And I also want to offer a, <laughs> a slightly lighter uh, recommendation. Cocaine Cowboys uh, on Netflix. Obviously, it, it's still a pretty pretty uh, heady subject. But um, in addition to the entertainment value, and it is, it is uh, plentiful, there's a lot of legal content in there. Uh, so sort of going back to Neil's discussion of, of clerkships, there's, there's a lot there, a lot of things that happened at, at the courts. If you have any interest at all in, in that aspect of the law, what happens in the courtroom, there's just a lot of great content in the in the series about the, the trials that were faced by the main protagonists and jury dynamics, both in terms of jury selection, in terms of jury deliberations how the interaction between law enforcement and, and the, the judicial system. So that, that alone was of quite a bit of interest. But of course, there's also a more salacious side to it. The cowboys in question are these um, drug dealers operating out of Miami in the uh, late 70s and 80s uh, and into the 90s. I had heard about this for, for some time, but never got around to it. Part of the reason why I didn't uh, get to it sooner is because I thought, you know, I've seen enough things on the drug wars and all that. It, there's really not a whole lot that can be added by a, by, by a particular series. But I was wrong. This one really gripped me. Um, so Cocaine Cowboys on Netflix. Um, Jonathan, what do you have? Hopefully something a little more upbeat. <laughs> 
let me jump in there and just say how glad I am that you let me go first because <laughs> I would not have <laughs> wanted to follow that. <laughs> That's excellent, Fred. Um, mine is a little more serious, uh, but I, I have suggested my share of fluff over over the episodes as, as we've been doing this. Um, so I'm recommending Foreign Policy's Africa Brief. I'm always subscribing and unsubscribing to newsletters because I am continuing to refine what I want to know about the world, the level of expertise I need to help me understand things. And a lot of times, you know, I can easily spend six hours a day reading through news stories and and newsletters by very, uh, very talented writers. And I frankly just don't have enough time to do that in my day. So I appreciate uh, foreign policy also has a great China briefing. Um, there are some other ones, uh, Cynicism by uh, Bill Bishop. There are some great newsletters that I've found and recommended just because I can, uh, a lot of days I only have time to glance through the headlines, but I get the headlines are detailed enough and the stories are engaging enough and detailed enough at the level that I want to engage with. Uh, for Africa Brief, I'm still not as familiar with the, I don't know how many countries are in Africa, 50, Niels, you could probably tell me 50 some, 60 some countries in Africa. And uh, there's just a lot going on all the time. And so I'm, I'm trying to work my way through. I mean, I think I understand Asia, Southeast Asia quite well. But Africa is, has always been intriguing to me and still continues to be quite mystifying just because of the sheer number of countries, uh, the complexity, the history. And so if you're at all interested in understanding Africa at a very deep level, um, you know, it's going to be, uh, you're going to be treading in deep water, but I certainly enjoy it when it comes out. And this is just a once a week newsletter. So if you sit down and take 15 or 20 minutes, you can get the main story and skim the headlines and, and have a decent feel for some of the top issues that are going on in Africa right now. Uh, with that, Niels, I want to thank you again for your time. It's certainly been enjoyable. We covered not nearly enough material, so we'll have to have you back again at some point, uh, preferably after you've had some time in your new post. We can hear what you're doing uh, with the UN. And thanks again for taking the time. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. 